So welcome to the AEC Hive podcast. Really excited to be here today. I'm Ralph Montague. I'm a director at ArcDucks and joined by my co-founder for AEC Hive, John Egan from BIM Launcher. John, do you want to say a quick hi? Hi, everyone. My name's John Egan, director of BIM Launcher, co-founder at AEC Hive, and looking forward to another uh, AEC Hive podcast. So really excited today to be joined by Johan Tuckler from Mott McDonald. Uh, Mott McDonald is a global engineering company, and Johan is based in Portland. And um, Johan, we're very excited to, to have you on the podcast today to talk about innovation and the AEC sector. So if you want to give us a brief introduction to yourself and maybe a little bit of your background and what you're currently up to. Well, first of all, thank you uh, for uh, you know sending out the invitation for me to join you on this awesome podcast. I really like the idea of, of having a, a community where we can, uh, you know, use our, our resources and our knowledge and, and share it, which which is what I'm finding being the most useful in in my professional development is is learning from my peers and and sharing my my knowledge from my peers. So thank you. Um, so yeah, uh, I, I've been uh, you know I've been in the AC in- industry for. Almost 18 years now. Um, I started as a, a draft person, making construction drawings for structural dra- for structural engineers uh, for quite a bit. And recently, I've been, you know, moving into the uh, BIM planning aspect of, of the, the project lifecycle. Uh, so a lot of what I'm promoting today and these days is is uh, you know the BIM fundamentals and and just preaching that the good BIM gospel. <laughs> so so yeah. I've, I've, uh, like I said, I started drafting, you know, in 2003 in, in Maryland uh, on the East Coast, and and I was with a couple of structural engineer firms, and I was able to, you know, get get my get my foot in the door in, in the industry and really learn about, uh, you know, structural systems and construction drawings and partners and and um, co-workers. I've been able to really learn from them and and grow my knowledge base of the construction industry. So yeah, I've been able to you know work my way through CAD, uh, AutoCAD, and and you know get into Revit. And like I said, now I'm just like looking at the big picture of of how we can, you know, actually use all these uh, softwares and all these innovations that are coming up in the industry to better serve uh, our clients and, and our projects. So it's a pretty exciting time that that I'm finding myself in, and, and I'm I'm really glad that I'm able to share and, and find these platforms to share my knowledge and and uh, have these conversations with, you know, my peers. You made a really interesting point there about people, you know, learning. And what's your sense that is the industry structured in a way that people do learn very well from each other or is it sort of haphazard and the knowledge sharing aspect of of the AEC sector? Is it just luck of the draw if you manage to get... Mixed up with the right people, you learn great things, and if you don't, you you get stuck. <laughs> Absolutely, I think the education aspect of our industry, you know, is one of my favorite topics because um, I see the opportunities in in forming a better education program to to help staff our open positions that we have internationally, but the consultants and owners and education organizations, they're all kind of looking at what is it that we need to teach here? And I'm finding that, yes, it is a little, 
it is pretty disjointed in terms of getting the right education accessible to the people that, that are interested in 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 the field. So, you know, it, it's it's twofold, you know, we have to do a better job of promoting our industry and, and promoting that we have and we, we have the need for individuals to come up and, and learn these skills. But we also have to be introspective and say, okay, you know, like how are we going to teach these individuals? What do we want to teach them to, to be most successful uh, for the pro- for the problems that we're facing today and that we might be facing in the future? So, um, yeah, education is – there's a huge opportunity there. And uh, one of the messages I, I try to promote, again, is, is um, I have this all this information about Revit, CAD, the BIM, BIM process, the BIM management planning. And I'm – it's all here. It's all free. Like, reach out. Hit me up on LinkedIn. Like, I'm more than happy to share with you, you know, my experiences and the, uh, the, the troubles, the issues, the concerns that I faced. So – and that's what I mean by learning. Uh, and that's what I, I think I see more and more today is uh, those individuals that seek out, that are asking, you know, why, who, <laughs> when, where, <laughs> you know, those simple questions. Like those are the individuals who, who are going to propel in their uh, professional development because they are, you know, looking at the problems from a, you know, a, a – logical standpoint of okay you know we know we want something well what are the things in in the in the way to to get there like what do i have to consider so and like i that said w- that that wouldn't describe you know sort of the majority of people in the ac sector you know uh, <laughs> seeking out knowledge wanting yes. to learn um you know that's that's really a minority it, my, my own view is that the majority of people are just doing stuff over and over again in a sort of mundane fashion, you know, without really seeking out better ways of doing things. And uh, consequently, you know, that translates into a low, low innovation in in that people are doing things that they did 10, 20 years ago uh, in the same way without, even though we have these fantastic tools and processes available to us in general, they're not being adopted we had actually one of our previous podcasts was with um, Adam Mentor from Autodesk, but he was saying that the tools are so advanced, but the the adoption of the, the and the use of the tools is is pretty low. Would you agree with that? Or absolutely, the more and more I see, we speak of innovation, and innovation is is necessary. It is going to happen with, regardless. But what we can manage with innovation is how fast that innovation gets implemented into into the current workflows, right? But we won't be able to do that unless we really are sticking to the fundamentals of what asset management is, of what project management is, of what a true BIM project really means. And, and if we don't really, you know, adhere to these uh, known standards – then we can't really move on to using these innovations efficiently. We're always going to be just learning the next new new thing to fix this one issue right now. But going back to the education standpoint is we need to document better our processes as, and, and, and invest more time into, well, did this work? 
how well did it work? Can it be better instead of just going on to the next project? And so that, that's all over again. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I always remember the saying, you know, when you're growing up, they say experience is the best teacher. But what they forget to tell you is it mustn't be your experience. You know, it's not <laughs> You know, you're meant to be learning from the experiences of others. And, uh, exactly. You, know, you just get a sense that people keep making the same mistakes and they keep trying to solve the same problems uh, year on year. The, the conversations just don't move on. And um, Why do you think that is? Is it, is it because the, the industry is very fragmented and people are, they work in these small teams and, you know, within that environment, they're not sort of seeking experiences outside of that environment to to learn and so they're going through the same learning experiences over and over again you probably see that in a big company like Mott McDonald with global well, I, a yeah, lot of I mean, teams Mott McDonald is, is actually you know one of the organizations that, that is actually proactive in the sense that you know they know we know we have um, issues in execution or we have opportunities of, of um, improving our digital execution and so we're proactive in, in identifying, hey, what is it that we're actually providing to our clients and how can we efficiently do that in, in, um, in a cost-efficient way with the resources that we have? And honestly, like, I think going back to the main question, like, what is the problem? I think the problem there is leadership. You know, we need leadership to understand that it's not just about the, the spreadsheets and the profit and the bottom line of, of your of your business. It's about the other resources, the, the human resources and what you're investing in those human resources and uh, investment in, in training, uh, professional development. Like as, as managers, as leaders, there's a lot of responsibility, uh, not just for the, for the business, the organization, the mortar and brick organization, but also for the staff supporting you. Because if you're not supporting your staff, how can they support you? And so that is one of the benefits of, of <laughs> the current uh, pandemic is is that we have the time right now to be introspective and, and say, hey, you know, am I being the right leader for the right for my right person for for the person that's working for me? Like, am I providing the support that they need to 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 help them grow if they want to grow. And I think that's what we should be promoting more in our industry is we want people to grow. We don't, we know that everybody doesn't want to grow and that's fine. But we as managers, as leaders, we need to make it available for our, our staff to grow and, and seek out that knowledge and have room to say, Hey, why are we doing this this way? Like, can we do it better? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And I think we can in most cases. In most cases, we can. I mean, there's been lots of studies about the sector in general and the, the output and productivity of the sector. And, you know, there's all these graphs that say there's been very little change in the productivity over the, the last 40 years, you know, compared to, say, other sectors like manufacturing, et cetera. So we, and most of that is because we just keep doing the same things over and over again and we approaching projects you know in the same way almost with a blank sheet of paper and thinking how can we work smarter and continuously drawing things over and over again and correcting things not doing it right the first time but just trying to get stuff out and then having to come back and fix it again do you think that sort of mindset of let's be smarter about the way we 
do things? Is that is that prevalent in in the leadership you're talking about, or is it just we'll leave it up to the staff to figure out how to get on with it? Well, you know it, that that comes down to the individual, unfortunately. Mm. You know, mm. it's it's about who you get as a manager, who you get as your support, um, who you get as your team partners, your, your partners in your team of your project. You know, it it all depends on on the individuals, right? But as a, I think, as individual organizations, I think we can. There's the opportunity there to to harbor more of a, a culture of ask questions. If you don't know, ask. It's okay not to know. We're, we are uh, we are an industry of professionals, right? There's resources, so they're out there. And the wonder of the internet now is that the information is right at our fingertips. We just got to ask. So we just have to keep promoting that within our new up and coming professionals and, and and keep saying, hey, ask, ask the question. Even if you ask it again, just keep asking, you know, yeah. and you you might find you might find people that aren't giving you the support and the questions that you need. And you might find somebody that will be supportive. I mean, again, it's about the individual and how you're going to, you know, react to that. So I, what I would say in general, personally, I like to be non-reactive, right? Um, I like to, when something happens, let, let's say somebody cuts me off, you know, while I'm driving, you know, I, I'm not immediately like, you know, barking outside the window. That's what I mean, reactive. Like I try to take a moment <laughs> and breathe and let the emotions just go through my body and then I'll take take some time to to figure out what I'm going to do. And yeah, it might be seconds, you know, uh, it might be a couple minutes, but the the point is is that we as people, you know, individuals, professionals, we we have this chance right now to be really introspective and ask ourselves like, hey, are we doing the best we can for for myself, for my my company? For my client, like, you know, this is, this is a good time actually, even though we're all cooped up. You know, this is a time to, to ask, um, these questions about how we can better be of service. And how can we do things better? And, uh, it's interesting, John, you know, you've had this experience, John, yourself, but in general, once people identify that there's some problems and they try to investigate uh, better ways of doing things, it just seems that those types of people end up, you know, sort of on the outside of the profession eventually, <laughs> or professions, um, yeah. you know, rather than core to the to the way the the industry works. So, so if you if you're a, a type of person who likes investigating new ways of doing things and trying new tools and new processes, for some reason you end up doing that outside of the core construction. AEC sector is that would that be your sense, John? I think so. I think that's it's a fair analysis. I certainly have I have a friend in the industry working for an engineering company at the moment who is building some very innovative and technologically advanced solutions to issues that the organisation has presented them with. You know, but it seems, especially from his perspective, that that organization 
is not the vehicle to develop the new solution and he is almost you know to, like almost as a first port of call the first thing that he's doing is looking at avenues out of that organization and so that so that he can uh, further advance the tools that he's actually working on right. so so that's you know, maybe it's the structure i mean your own experience johan i mean you you know, you started off in the, the drafting space and then you've obviously moved up into the management space. But in general, maybe it's the structure of directors, middle management, and then the people who do the work that stru- that structures too, too tiered or too hierarchical to allow yeah. people with, with bright ideas to, to do anything. You know, or maybe they're not given the space to do that. Maybe it's a look, we're too busy to, to think about doing things better. I don't know. Yes, absolutely. And and I think that um, most organizations are kind of in a place where, where they're like, you know, how can we be more efficient in, in project delivery if you're on the consultant side, right? And, and if you're on the contractor side, you're like, man, how can I build this thing faster and cheaper, right? Um, and, and why I'm so passionate about BIM is because I believe that BIM helps manage these activities that go on through the life cycle of through, through the phases of, of this project, right? So, and, and what I'm finding is that the fundamentals of BIM aren't being adhered to. So, if we were all to be actually adhering to, you know, developing our BIM our project goals, then identifying how model uses are going to directly make those uh, realize those goals, right? So BIM, BIM uses, model uses. And then the next step would be you have to set up your uh, information exchanges, right, during each phase. Who's going to be developing what model, what the responsible party is going to be in the next step, and what they're going to need in terms of uh, the information and the modeling requirements of, of that deliverable. And, and after that, then you can start talking about level of information, level of detail, once you have these pieces in place and, and defined as part of your project, then you can start putting all those portions in a process map. You know, you gotta describe to the team what the the workflow of this project is going to be and how um, each BIM model, each model use is going to interact within this this process, right? Then finally, we describe all that in the BIM execution plan, and that's what is the basis of the BIM execution plan. And what I'm saying is, as an industry, we're not really adhering to that. We want models. We're building models, but really with the intent of two uh, model uses. And number one, the most common, design authoring, right? Construction drawings. You're making drawings. You're you're building a model to make drawings, okay? Uh, Number two, you're building a model to do clash detection. And that is the most, these are the most common uses of models today. And so if we're not, if we're not really looking into how other model activities can benefit the project outcome, then we're not really using BIM at his, at his most, at his most, right? And if we're not defining goals and if we're not defining LOD and if we're not really making a BIM execution plan, then we really don't have we're really not changing anything that we've done in the last 20 25 years of project delivery we're just making drawings and making sure nothing clashes right 
but and part the, I mean part of that challenge is well I'm sure it's the same in in the US but definitely in in Ireland and the UK is this this disconnect if you like between design the design team and the design consultants whose job it is to create a set of design intent information but it's not it's not their job to create construction information so so the bim that they're making is the only purpose is to as you say make the design intent drawings but the models themselves are not built in a way that it's constructible if you like so you know those those models get handed over then to a contractor who looks at it and says well you know I can't build this thing it's not, it's not constructible so I'm going to have to rebuild it now to make it something that I could actually construct it's a, a fabrication model Right, and so and, be, and, it's, be, and depending how bad that information is, in most cases they they're almost starting again, because and because they're not connected in any way uh, contractually, because the the consultants are working for the clients, so there's a loose connection in that the client has to hand over the consultant's information to the contractor. But exactly, no, exactly, and this is why you know I'm I'm trying to promote hashtag BIM is more than models. Specifically yes. for that, because if the the owner's planning department doesn't really understand at least the fundamentals of of what a project of a BIM project really is, and if the project manager doesn't really understand of what a project a BIM project really is, then how can how can you keep your consultant adhering to their BIM execution plan? You know, how can you make sure that they're uh, providing you the service that they said that they would for for us to you know the owner and the consultant the contractor for us to to give a better taste of bim for the industry we have to really you know adhere to these these fundamentals you know we haven't been um adhering to them and that's why we're we're looking back and saying well do we really need bim because from what i see it it's not really helping me it's causing actually more more heartache but what I'm experiencing is is that we're still not really do, really doing BIM, so you can't really you know blame it on 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 the BIM process when you're really not doing a BIM process. You're just doing 3D CAD. Johan, I wanted to ask if if you consider the the output as the key driver for BIM throughout the process of developing a building. What do you think needs to change in terms of the current climate or the current environment with regards to drivers for to push the supply chain into alignment with these BIM fundamentals that you talk about? Yeah, um, I think the solution there is is twofold, right? So for the owner, if you're an owner that has a large portfolio of assets, a large portfolio of buildings, you should have a a asset management department. You should have a project management department. You should have GIS and you should have BIM. You need those pieces because that is what the consultants are going to be delivering to you. So you as an owner need to be very in tune with what information is going to be developed throughout the life cycle of the project because that is what is being delivered. So on the owner, you need to, number one, assess your information and make sure you have the supporting resources to, to manage this data and these models and these drawings, right? 
on the consultant side, on the contractor side, we could do a better job of teaching or guiding consulting to the, the owners as to what really BIM can benefit the project or, or the building, right, or the operations of or the maintenance of the building because that is the holy grail there, right? That's what the owner is getting. They're not getting just drawings and a model. They're getting a building with systems and elevators, right? <laughs> so and they need to make sure that they have the resources to, to maintain it for the expected life, lifetime, right? The consultants, uh, we need to, again, have a better understanding of what it really means to execute these BIM projects and help the owners and guide them to, to really understanding what it is and, and how it benefits them in the operations and maintenance. Because, like I said, that's the goal. Do you think that clients are becoming more aware of the benefits of BIM? Or are you seeing any trends there, in, especially in the U.S.? Well, you know, there's those organizations who are proactive, right, that they have a, a, um, a BIM program or some type of digital facilities or digital infrastructures group that manages and maintains all these assets, informations, and models. But then there's this group of what I would call the reactionary group that is – they're getting models from consultants. They're getting um, models from the contractor, and they're like, okay, how can we maximize the use of these models, right? So they're like, okay, we know we need them because our clients are using it <laughs> or, or our contractors are using it. And then there's the group that's just like, okay, you know, <laughs> we want a building. Just get it to us fast. <laughs> so it, it, it's really about what owner you're working with, I think. And I think that's one of the um, a misconception that BIM, that doing things in BIM properly, not uh, incorrectly, but if you're doing it properly, that that's going to cost some extra money and extra time. Whereas the, the reality is doing things improperly costs money and costs time. So if you're constantly trying to fix up information and correct information and find uh, Problems, you know, that's that's all slowing the the process down and, and and costing every project. Just about every project is delayed and also runs over cost. I think that thought that owners have that I need this building and I need it done quickly. Therefore, let's not put them in the equation because it's going to cost money and it's going to cost time. You know, that's incorrect, <laughs> but that's the general perception of everybody. I mean, where are they getting this perception from? Is it from marketing? Suppose, no, it's, uh, yeah. Well, it's it's from um, advice they're getting from project team. Yeah. So, I mean, it, they're getting mixed advice. You get one set of consultants will tell the client openly that it's going to cost more money and more time if they want BIM because in their intention is to go and draw a lot of CAD drawings in 2D and do this extra exercise of, of turning those drawings into a model. So, you know, there's disconnected, what I call pseudo-BIM. So, and if, if you do it that way, yes, it obviously does cost more time, more money. But there's also the contractor saying, if you give us these design intent models which are not constructible and we've got to go and re rebuild those models, that's also going to take time and money 
So it's from the improper use of BIM, I think, as you described there, Johan, where, where people are not doing it properly. They're not following the fundamentals. They, they This is a mishmash of, of incorrect practices that are adding time and cost. Would that be a sense? That's right. You know, again, I, 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 I mentioned that, you know, what what they're really doing is 3D CAD, and they're only doing uh, they're only using 3D models for design authoring and clash detection, right? So if the owner understood the requirements of of BIM, what and what it takes to create models and develop the information, then they would go to the contractor that is telling them, oh, we have to build our own model. Then they would say, you know what? No, because our uh, BIM standard is defining how these uh, model elements are being developed in these phases and to which level of information these uh, elements are being associated with right at that moment in the phase. So if, if the owner understands the information in the model that is necessary for that phase and for the next phase, then you can, you know, stop that conversation right there and say, you're not building another model. <laughs> the model has what we specified you need, and, and that's where we can manage the contractor in the contract, right? And where that's all breaking down is that most uh, clients don't have the ability to to check models. So they, they there's a sort of a blind trust that the consultants will produce what the contractors need, but without the ability to check that, when it gets through six months of design and it, it ends up on a contractor's desk to look at, it's like, well, we can't use this. Then you can't backtrack six months. You, then you're playing serious catch-up and uh, a lot of dis- disruption. So the model checking, you know, the, it's, it's one thing to write a BIM execution plan and say, this should happen and that should happen. Uh, but if nobody's checking that it's happening, then, yeah, it's, it's like, I know you guys enjoy your football, but we, we uh, I, I enjoy my rugby. But it's like, you know, having a rugby game without a referee, every, all the players know the rules, but they also know how to break the rules. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, and, the, and the, the reason for the is to, um, you know, make sure that people abide by the rules and that, that keeps the game flowing and makes it entertaining. If you take the referee away, it'll just be carnage. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, That's and right. so so without the ucability to check and what people are doing, and that's exactly what's happening in construction. It's it's carnage. Like people are just doing whatever they like and nobody realizing nobody's gonna check this. You know, my client says he wants Bim and he wants Kobe and he wants all this stuff, but I know he doesn't know what he wants. So I'll just do whatever I used to do. And uh, like I think it comes back to this reason of why for the client, um, for, especially from the sidelines here as I'm listening to you both talk about this. Um, I know that if I employed a gardener to come and cut the field out the side of my house and he came with a, a walk on lawnmower beside or a walk behind lawnmower and he was charging me by the minute and I had a drive on lawnmower in, at the house. I would say, no, when you're not using your walk-on lawnmower, you're using my drive-on lawnmower because it's going to cost me less. Is there any, I suppose, metrics or information available for clients that 
that would allow them to take a similar stance when when setting out the project goals with their supply chain and really you know when it comes to BIM, they're really stringent on it because it's actually going to save them save them money in the short term and long term. Yes, and, and like I said, those organizations that you're describing, those are, are the proactive organizations that they're taking the time to assess the information that they are using to operate and maintain their facility. That That's really it. What is the information I need to operate the system when it fails? And how can I uh, maximize the use of it before it dies, right? And none of that information is available in drawings. None of that information is available in one spec. <laughs> uh, so that's, again, you said it. You have to have that, that, that way of holding the consultants and the contractors uh, um, to the plan, right? Making sure that the elements in the model are being developed at the right level and the right information at the right phase for the next party. BIM isn't too difficult, right? It's just you got to define the pieces that you need for the problem at hand, really, you know. And like I said, if you, if you go back to a little bit earlier in the discussion, it's, it's, it's those, you know, four pieces, BIM goals, BIM uses, uh, information exchanges, level of detail. You got to put that on the process map. That's your your BIM execution plan, and then, like you said, you gotta you just gotta work the plan, you gotta manage it, make sure that we adhere to it, because that's the basis of the whole team. That's the work. That's the playbook. So there there shouldn't be a oh, I don't know what somebody needs or I don't know what to do at this point. You know, it should be in the plan. I slightly disagree with you, Jan. That the only thing that in, they're interested in is the information for. For operating the building because they still have to construct the building and they they want that done in the best possible way that's not going to uh, run over schedule and run over cost you know True. so so it's the two things like True. Cons- construct construct this building virtually sort it out in this cheap environment where you're not committing real materials and real people's lives coordinate it get it ready program it cost it do all the stuff you need to do, uh, and then let the construction roll out without all the usual problems and end up with all this rich asset data that we can use yeah. for, for operating it. So I think it's all of those things. Yes. Because if you just leave it up to the, the the designers, as you said, they just want to get a set of drawings out and get paid, they'll do you know, half a job. And if you leave it to the contractors, they just want to build something and get off site and move on to the next project, they'll do a half a job. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, so you've got to be monitoring everybody through design, through construction, you know, and then end up with this, this end game. So there seems to be a lot of waste throughout these stages. A lot of people not seeing the point in delivering good information. Like, I'm quite aware that the design well, the, team isn't isn't responsible for what the contractor does equally. The contractor is not responsible for the operations team do, do. So how do you, so for instance, if you take the design team deliverables, like I think, Johan, you were, you, you spoke about the, 
this problem where the contractor has to go and recreate those models. And I, I know from past discussions, Ralph, this is something that you come across quite often as well. How do you, I mean, like if the, if the design team's deliverables is to deliver um, information that can act as the input to that constructability model, remodel, if you like, how do you, how do you get over the the way that the design team actually finish and do their deliverable because at the end of the day what they deliver they're not responsible for and the contractor will naturally have to go and assess that for constructability and all the rest and get all of his side of the project in line sure let's let's make a little example of a hvac system that needs to be replaced in a building right it's a small project, okay, for example. In this project, during the planning phase, the owner, they're going to be developing asset information already, okay? And this is what I mean a, a, about understanding what information you're going to be needing at what phase, all right? So in the planning phase, you know, it's it's high level. You need a project number, project name, project address, and, and that's it for the project, right? And then you get in the specifics of, okay, for this project, we need to replace some HVAC system or some equipment in the HVAC system. So we know that uh, – so we give the project – we classify this as a, you know, as a HVAC or something. So basically just you need to classify your project as or, – or the system. Um, you need to identify the system or that or, or class, right? you got an HVAC system. Is it electrical? Is it plumbing? Is it a building? Is it um, is it survey? Whatever it is, okay? Then in the design phase, right? So the design phase, the contra- the consultant has this information, has the project name, number, has what uh, classification the system is or the building is. And so they use that information and develop more to it. So within that system, there's going to be five or six uh, pieces of, of equipment that need to be replaced. So that means that for each of those entities – Aside from the, the first level of asset information that, that the owner may provide or the operations department may provide, they're going to add more information as to what is the classification of the specific entity. Okay, Is it a rooftop unit? Is it a condenser? Is it a fan? Right, And, and then they're going to give it an ID number, and they're going to give it a, a room name or area name. So – Right there in these two phases, you've developed uh, – two different parties have developed information for one pro- one piece of – one piece of this project, right? And so the contractor then, once they're – once they actually get the bid and they get the piece of equipment, now they can say, okay, th- it's the manufacturer. It's the model number, serial number. Here's the operations manual. Here's the warranty. Here's the part list. And see, all that – Along with the design phase asset information, along with the planning phase asset information, that's really it in terms of like what most most organizations are maintaining in terms of asset information. So if we know the pieces that we're developing during the phase, then we can define that in the contract, and that's how we adhere adhere our our consultants and contractors to that plan. I suppose also to your question, John. Um, what they're doing in the United States with sort of integrated project delivery, where they're, they're bringing the construction team into the team 
far earlier. In other words, they're actually part of the team from the very beginning so that they can be monitoring constructability as the designs are progressing rather than this idea of you know, spending six months coming up with a design when, and then the contractors look at it and say, we can't build that. We're going to have to do a whole lot of work. So early contractor engagement into the design process uh, also is, is making a difference. And they're doing a lot of that in the, in the UK with alliancing contracting as well. So moving away from this traditional process where a design is developed without the input of people who understand how to construct buildings. And then it goes out to bid, and then there's a whole lot of work to try and repurpose information before you can actually build it. And that's why um, I, I'm really excited about ISO 19650, um, because as I understand it, this gives owners, consultants, contractors, it gives them the framework as to what the contractual language should be when it comes to information models and, and how we get that that language that has um, traditionally been part of a BIM execution plan into the actual contract. So I think that for the industry, hopefully the industry can kind of start adhering to this type of framework that, that is being supplied by by the UK. Because one of my favorite things about BIM and learning BIM is that I'm not like inventing anything new here. Like <laughs> there's plenty of resources uh, out there, great papers out there that will give you awesome information, how to set up a BIM program, how to set up a BIM project. You just got to seek it and read it. <laughs> yeah. um, and it and it's free. And again, like if anybody's interested, I'm on LinkedIn, reach out to me and, and we can, you know, have a chat and, and discuss whatever concerns you have about about BIM. So where do you see the you know, so we have the ISO standards now. They've been adopted across Europe as European standards. And I suppose what's interesting in Europe um, is that you can't, no nation can have a, a conflicting national standard. So, you know, that's part of the regulations in Europe. That means that every European country has to drop whatever national standard they had and adopt the, um, the ISO standard, which is, which is interesting. Although just having a standard still doesn't make it mandatory to follow the standard. So standards are still, um, you know, unless it's called up in a regulation or some either client mandate or client requirement that you have to follow that standard, then people will still try and do their own thing. But where, I mean, we have the standard, I suppose. So where's the innovation? Because we don't, we don't have to invent anything anymore, as you say. We have the processes set out. We have the the data standards that support that. So, where do you see the next innovation? What's the next? Um, assuming people have adopted these standards. Well, I think. Where, where's the next thing going? <laughs> you know, I think, in my opinion, where the industry is is going to take, you know, all this is is you know, digital twins, smart cities, right? I think that's where inevitably it's going to get to the Internet of Things and, and having all these um, all this asset information and at the owner's fingertips, right, uh, real time, so that they can better get the most life out of this this asset. I think that's where it's going. But again, I think that it's going to 
take us a little longer if we don't if we don't adhere to to some kind of uh, standard of of what a BIM project really is and and what it really takes to to execute a BIM plan. So that I think is the innovation, or I think that's where we're headed towards. You know, digital cities and digital twins. What I like about BIM is it's Everything revolves around an object. Buildings are collections of materials and, and components, which are objects. You're literally ass- assembling a virtual building within a model before you construct it on site, and, it, and therefore all the, the physical things that you're assembling on the site are represented by a corresponding digital object, which has geometry. Obviously, it has uh, some structured data about what it is and it has um, some documentation that you need so the digital twin is obviously then connecting that digital version of the building to to other systems just the way we approach BIM at the moment I find is back to front because we we're getting designers to make these objects and they're generic so they're putting a lot of time into making generic objects when, and they know themselves that those objects are never going to be constructed. So they don't bother putting too much effort into making those objects representative of the thing that has to be built, f- fully representative. You know, then, then the contractors and the manufacturers that work for the contractors are sort of repopulating those models with objects which more closely represent what's, what's going to be constructed, uh, hopefully. In some instances, we, we find people are even constructing buildings on site before the model's correct. You know, yes. So, so they, they, go, they go out to site and the, the plumber knows, you know, the plumber who's installed hundreds of HVAC systems that you were talking about earlier says, that's never going to work. I'm just going to move this thing here. I'm going to drop this thing there. and Otherwise, it's not going to work. So they're making right. change on site because that, that plumber was never invited to look at the model before the, you went to site uh, and give his comment to the digital model <laughs> and make the change in the model before you execute it on site. And that means we've got to come in afterwards and do laser scanning and capture what he's actually built in the HVAC system and then build a third model, which represents the building. But then the, even that model, people realize, well, it's already built, so I'm not going to put too much effort into this asset model, you know. Because nobody's going to use it to build. So yeah, you know, we keep it's just like we're doing things backwards all the time. Whereas if you if you took a lean approach and said, look, if we want to end up with a building on such and such a date, and we worked backwards, we would have the digital model finished, completed, coordinated, planned, tested, costed everything long before we we have the physical building being executed. And how would you do that? Then you have to involve the contractors and the manufacturers far earlier. You can't appoint you can't appoint that HVAC company on Friday and say, I want you to be on site on Monday installing ductwork without giving him time to create a, the HVAC model that's constructible. Do you think we're doing it all backwards? <laughs> I do. No, I I do. And and again, um, it goes back to the fundamentals, right? You got to understand your goals. What are your goals and how do you create these models to realize those goals, right? So if if we're not doing that, then we can't really expect to to execute BIM properly. And, And if we can't identify who is using 
what models <laughs> and what information and how they're using it. And if we're not supplying that information to them, then we're not we're not properly working in a BIM project, right? So again, I, I go back to these BIM fundamentals. Like let's let's make sure that uh, we really understand these these fundamentals, and then we can um, start, you know, really looking at innovations and saying, like, you know what, we know that uh, we, we know the process. We've got the process down. Let's let's throw this new technology in because you know we've already tried it in a, a different way. Let's see how else something works. But we need to get those fundamentals down. I mean, my own feeling is that the technology is not the new innovation because the, going back to that earlier point, that the technology is already far more advanced than the people's use of the technology is. And uh, so, you know, I'm thinking the the big innovation is the process. Like, how do you appoint a contractor to a project when you haven't developed a design model yet that you can go out to tender? Because you don't want the designers to produce models that are not constructible. So you've got to have the, the contract on board and part of the team. So as the designers are making those decisions, the contractors are giving their input. But they're not going to do that unless they're appointed to the project, unless they're getting paid. So, yeah, so the, the sort of turning the, the whole procurement process on its head, which is, and they've, they've demonstrated this in IPD and, and alliancing type contracts, which it's, it's everybody is actually signed up to the contract before a single thing is modeled. But even that's not really innovation because IPD has been around for a couple of years. Alliancing yep. has been around for 10 years. You know, only 6%, like I don't know what it's like in the States, but it, in the UK, only 6% of projects use alliancing contracting. So most projects use the traditional form of adversarial design, bid, build, or various options around that. Yeah, that's mostly my experience here in the UK, on the US. So even though those those uh, forms of procurement have, are, even that's not an innovation because it's already there. People just don't use it. <laughs> exactly. Difficult to see where the, the innovation is. Maybe it's some sort of electro shock treatment to get people to change their minds and use the things that exist. <laughs> yeah, my personal opinion is that when you can show that the new ways of doing things are more profitable for everyone involved, I think that would be enough to change the tides. Well, and for that to happen, you need, as, as Johan said, that you need really um, educated clients, client bodies who, who understand these things and uh, you know, set out an approach that is not going to be like every other project for the last 20 years, but is, is a novel and new new way of doing things. Yeah, because, you know, I, I see that um, the owner has its its own opportunities for innovation, right? Like they they have their own uh, point of view of how they can innovate for their for their operations. So and that's going to be very different for for the production side and the contracting, the the consultant and the contractor, right? They're going to have a different point of view of what efficiency means for them and what what type of what the value is that BIM brings to their activities, right? And that's I think what we should all be kind of thinking of is, you know, yes, I have my tasks, I have my deliverables, 
but is what I am delivering what is needed for the project and for the person who is using this information? And most of the time, traditionally, you'll find that it's not. And, and there's the opportunity. There's where we can uh, have the opportunity for innovation, right? And like you said, maybe the innovation isn't technological. Maybe the innovation is just the process and, and making sure that we adhere to it or also, you know, the what I'm trying to do is just promoting that this information is out there. It's free. Just you, you got to be able to know what you're looking for. And that's why I invite people to, to reach out because I know there's a bunch of questions. There's a lot of uncertainty of, of the value of BIM, but there's a whole lot of um, information out there, different points of views and perspective that, that can be overwhelming. So looking for that right perspective is is going to be key to understanding your your program needs and how how do people connect with you like what do you when you say reach out so i'm i'm act- people people listening to this <laughs> so i'm active on linkedin um that's that's my main platform I, I seem to to be able to spread my my message there more effectively so um yeah just search for johan tuckler i'll put the link to your profile in the description of the youtube video you're awesome yeah i appreciate that and are you are you involved with any kind of industry groups in your area are are there a group of you that come together on a regular basis to meet up and discuss innovation or new ways of doing things outside outside of your company just sort of cross cross companies so on a on a individual um basis i've actually just kind of linked up with uh, a group that is pushing for open bim and they're using blender which is a open source uh platform um and they're developing add-ons so that it can act more like a aec platform for digital design and project digital delivery you know looking at um i'm really excited about that because of the open source aspect of it It, it's free it's a it's a software that anybody can download and just install on their machine it doesn't need a, a lot of computer resources to run it um and if you're you know interested in Interesting in what, you know, these softwares can do. There's, you know, a lot of great YouTube videos on there, great tutorials of, you know, will teach you the basics of, of Blender and, and what this group uh, is trying to do with Open BIM and, and making these uh, design solutions uh, accessible to, to more people. That's excellent. So what I hope um, you might consider even uh, connecting with the AEC Hive in your area. Um, you know, maybe at some stage we could um, see a, a swarm happening. We, we did our first event in Dublin last year, so we called it a swarm, but basically it was clusters or groups of people that had uh, innovative ideas that came together for a, a sort of a, an intense workshop day where they developed those ideas out and then presented it to um, to the to the wider group. So I think we, we've come gone over the hour anyway, so we might wrap it up there, Johan, but we really appreciate your your time and your input. I think it was a great discussion and yeah, there's a lot of challenges that I think the industry still has to deal with. We've got the technology, we've got the standards and the processes. Um, we just got to get somehow get people to, to use them. Yep. Yep, that's right. Yeah, so I don't know if you have it. 
John, do you have any last questions or parting remarks? Or? No, I'd just like to thank thank Johan again for his input and looking forward to connecting again in the future. Yeah, awesome. Uh, and, you know, anything that that I can help uh, to to promote the, the hive, and and you know, I'm interested in in uh, you know possibly getting a swarm set up over here. So so yeah, uh, probably connecting with you guys on that. So so thank you. That's excellent. Thanks, Johan. From my side as well, I really appreciate your time, and uh, we'll close it there.